Good morning. How is everybody? You guys good? Good. A couple of people over here who are doing well. Thank you. Um, I don't know if you guys have been keeping up with the news lately. There's been a lot of uh, talk about environmentalism and uh, recycling and climate change. And recently, talking about the government's responsibility, and they're talking about um, there, there was a study done of, of the most green presidents that we've ever had, and the results were pretty shocking. Uh, it was the Bushes. Bushes are green, get it? Green. If you didn't like that joke, I actually heard it from Muhammad this morning, so you can take it up, take it up with him. Who's him? Glad you guys are here this morning. Uh, if you were here last week, um, we, we very obviously uh, covered, covered the Easter story. We covered resurrection, and um, interestingly enough, we were still in the Gospel of John. We've been in that for some time now. And um, we're still in the Gospel of John. Two weeks ago, Savut taught chapter seven, went all the way through that. It's actually a pretty long chapter. He did a really good job working through that. And so we're gonna pick up now on chapter eight. If you were not here two weeks ago, where we find Jesus in the story in the Gospel of John is Jesus is at a festival in Jerusalem, big crowded festival. He is teaching, and, and we constantly and consistently see the, the antagonists in the gospel, the Pharisees, who are the religious leaders, they're coming and they are publicly antagonizing Jesus. They're trying to trip him up. They're arguing with him. They're debating with him, not getting very far, and their anger is continuing to grow and grow and grow as the gospel of John goes on. In chapter eight, we're gonna see more of that. We're only gonna do half of chapter eight. We're gonna see, again, another argument, debate, conversation, however you want to say that, between Jesus and these, these arrogant, and we're going to see very hateful, religious leaders uh, of the Jews in chapter 8. We're also going to cover what is probably one of the most famous stories in the New Testament. Famous, I say this because even with non-Christians, there is a colloquialism that we kind of have in the United States where we talk about throwing stones and who are you to cast stones and all kinds of people, believers and non-believers, use this phraseology about casting stones and judgment. And we're gonna read that story today about the woman caught in adultery, brought in front of Jesus in the hopes of kind of stumping him. And we're gonna see how that plays out and where we get that phrase, casting stones. So here's what we're gonna talk about a lot today though. And, and it is very simple. There's nothing overtly complicated. I would actually say it's an extremely logical, practical uh, uh, lesson we're gonna talk about today. We'll get through it relatively quick. It's not gonna take long, but we're gonna talk about this. We're gonna talk about knowing Jesus. And, and there are a lot of people who say, yeah, I know Jesus. We're not talking about just an intellectual knowledge of Jesus, that I know that, that Jesus exists. Um, we're talking about relationship. The biblical uh, kind of explanation for the word knowing is, is a deep, intimate relationship. With, with an individual. And we're gonna ask ourselves, do we have that kind of relationship with Jesus? And if we don't, is it, is it even really logical and, and uh, practical to call ourselves Christians if we don't truly have a relationship with him? You know, the word Christian means to, to follow Christ. And if one is not following Christ, it's kind of absurd to, to say I'm a, a, a Christian. So we're gonna talk about that a little bit today. Um, it's not gonna to be too brutal. Don't, don't you know, worry about it too much or anything like that. But we are gonna to have to approach this lesson today with some, some honesty. And, um, and we'll do that today. We'll go through this, we'll, we'll read it, we'll talk about it, 
and uh, we'll just ask ourselves today, hey, how is our relationship with, with Jesus, okay? So glad you're here. You should have got a notes handout when you walked in. Everything I'm gonna say will be uh, in those notes. Everything will be on the screens. If you have a Bible, we're in the fourth book of the New Testament, the Gospel of John. We learned last week, John is not only very, very, was very, very close to Jesus, he was also probably the fastest disciple that Jesus had. Learned that last week. Good piece of biblical knowledge there. Um, if you have a smartphone, the Experience Community app, you can download that, click on Sermon Notes, and we should be good to go, okay? Let me pray. We'll jump in this. We'll break down this chapter, or half of it, and um, hopefully we'll learn something from it today, okay? Let's pray. Father God, we love you. Lord, we thank you so much, Lord. I thank you for everyone in this room this morning. Um, we thank you, God, for the freedom, God, and the luxury and uh, the opportunity to do what we're doing right now, God, to worship you freely, to, to read your word and, and talk about it. God, we pray that you just bless this church this morning. We pray not just for this church, we pray for every church in our city, Lord, that teaches from this book, God, and, and believes in what it says, Lord. We pray for our other campuses and the churches in those counties and areas, God. We pray for the nonprofits we work with, and ultimately we pray, Father, that everything we do today, that it honors you and um, that it gets us closer to you in a relationship. We love you, we thank you, we praise you. We pray all these things in your son's name, God, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's read a little bit and we'll go back and we'll break it down, okay? This is what John writes. Then each one went to his house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he went to the temple again and all the people were coming to him. He sat down and he began to teach them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, Making her stand in the center, teacher, they said to him, they're being sarcastic, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. In the law of Moses, were commanded to stone such women. So what do you say? They asked this to trap him in order that they might have evidence to accuse him. Jesus stooped down and started writing on the ground with his finger, when they persisted in questioning him, he stood up and said to them, the one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he stooped down again and continued writing on the ground. When they heard this, they left one by one, starting with the older men. Only he was left with the woman in the center. And when Jesus stood up, he said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord, she answered. Neither do I condemn you, said Jesus. Go, and from now on, do not sin anymore. Okay, so in the spirit of transparency, honesty, dealing with the tough things, this is one of those things that we have to talk about. If you have a physical copy of your scripture, there's probably some brackets or some footnote around the part I just read. And the reason why is more than likely John probably didn't write that. Now, some, of, some people will take that and they will say, well, I guess the whole Bible is null and void. There is no God. Let's become nihilists. Like, you know, let's drive 150 down I-24 in the wrong direction because there's no point of living. And that's absurd. All of it, right? Absurd. So the earliest and most reliable manuscripts do not contain this in the Gospel of John. It is found in different manuscripts, but it's in different places in the Gospel of John, which kind of alludes us to think that it was kind of plugged in by someone else. It's also written in a very different vocabulary than what John wrote the entire book of John in. So again, does that mean it's all worthless? No, absolutely not. 
More than likely, this was a, 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 a verbal story, right, that, that John told people and probably somewhere later down the line, maybe after John passed away, someone put this story that was related orally to them into the Gospel of John. There is no question uh, that it was an authentic event that took place, though. This did happen, okay? So we're gonna talk about it and we're gonna teach it. So after the disciples and, and, and all the crowd went home, remember they're at a festival in Jerusalem, there's this big crowd around them, they, they, Jesus gets done teaching. It says that the disciples go back to their house, they're gonna rest a little bit. Jesus, on the other hand, goes out to the Mount of Olives kind of outside of Jerusalem, probably wanted some alone time, probably wanted some time to pray and kind of get charged up because the next morning, he's gonna go into the temple, he's going to teach and once again, he is going to be interrupted by, by the antagonists of the gospel. Not all of them were bad, but, but the majority, the Pharisees, the religious leaders. This time, though, when they interrupted, they had a secret weapon. They had a woman that had been caught in adultery. And if you're a woman in here, you're probably like, usually it takes two to commit adultery. Where is the man? Well, <laughs> oh, you women. <laughs> I heard like six, that's right. Well, this, <laughs> this was a very misogynistic society. That's not to say Jesus was. We talked about that last week. He absolutely was not, and we're gonna see right here he is not as well. It was a very misogynistic society. Also, more than likely, the man who was engaged in this adulterous relationship with this woman was probably part of, of this trap that was being set for Jesus, more than likely. So, the woman and the questions about the woman were there to trap Jesus. To, the, the, the Pharisees wanted to put Jesus in a situation to where there was no right answer. And however he responded was going to give them evidence to be able to throw him in jail or, or possibly even have him killed. So if Jesus responded by saying, yes, let's punish the woman, let's all stone her right now, that would have superseded Roman law and that would have gotten him in trouble with the Romans. Not only that, the kind of people that Jesus came to save were people like this woman. Remember, Jesus hung out with, hung out with tax collectors and publicans and sinners and, and prostitutes and, and kind of the worst of the worst in society. And if he would have punished this woman, that would have marginalized the kind of people that he came to save. He came to save everyone, but you know, Jesus loved the, 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 the kind of the worst of the worst. On the other hand, if Jesus just would have been like, hey guys, let's just, let's just forget this happened. Let's let her go. Let's, you know, let's just all turn around and, and walk away from this. That would have broke Jewish law, the law of Moses. In the law of Moses, it took two people to, to convict someone. It took two people to bring evidence. A testimony was not valid unless you had two witnesses. And that further kind of adds to the implication that this was a setup. It's not every day that, that two people just kind of catch someone in the act of infidelity or adultery, you know, you're walking with your friend, you're like, hey, that, that woman's cheating on her husband, let's call somebody, right? You know, like, that doesn't happen on a normal basis like this, so it was probably more than likely a, a setup. And so they present this conundrum to Jesus, and the first thing Jesus does is he doesn't spout off something, he doesn't lose his temper, he doesn't start throwing things. It says Jesus stoops down and he starts writing in the dirt. And at this point, they, they keep asking him, Jesus, what are we gonna do? Jesus, what do you say? Jesus, why are you writing in the ground? We're talking to you. Now, here's the thing. No one knows what Jesus wrote. We can speculate. I can speculate. I can tell you what I, I really hoped he wrote. I hope that he wrote down all the sins of all the people watching this situation. 
on the ground, right? I hope that he wrote down the, the, the names of some of the men who might have committed adultery at one point in their life, wrote down. The, I, I wish it was something like that, but we don't know. We have no idea what he wrote. That's one of those questions you can ask him when you get to heaven. What'd you write in the sand? <laughs> and so in Jesus's infinite wisdom, he responds, man, you gotta love this. He responds to the religious leader's trap with a trap of his own. And he looks at them and he says, okay, the one without sin, the one without sin, you be the first one to throw the stone. And this response was perfect. It didn't break Roman law, it didn't break Jewish law, and it exposed the evil that was in the heart of everyone watching. It did all three of those things simultaneously in Jesus's infinite wisdom. And then I believe for almost like dramatic effect, dramatic pause, he just goes right back and starts writing into the ground. And what that does is that gives everyone time to think <laughs> about what he just said. And their response was this, it says that they started to walk away. And the first ones that started to walk away were the older men. And that's because all of us in this room, whether you're a man or a woman, know that over time, we, we understand that we have accumulated some, some stupid decisions. We have accumulated some sinful action. And as time passes as Christians, listen, this is gonna be really important. As time passes as Christians, we should have not only more appreciation for grace and forgiveness, we should be showing that more to others because, because what happens is we realize that there was a time when we were once like this person. There was once a time when we were being condemned by a mob, if you will. But what tends to happen with a lot of Christians, and it's really unfortunate, listen, this is not us, us turning a blind eye to sin. We are not to turn a blind eye to sin. We'll talk about that here in a moment. But what we tend to do as Christians is, I've been a Christian for 20 years, and we, we distance ourselves from our past lifestyle, and then we start watching the news, or we see someone at the grocery store, or we encounter someone at a restaurant, and we say, look how bad these people are. These people are awful. I don't want them around me. I don't want them coming into my church. I don't want them on television. Look how bad they are. And they don't even know Jesus. And we forget that once upon a time, we were like them. Maybe we didn't commit the exact same sin as them, but we were once under condemnation just like they were, and we indulge in things, and we needed grace and forgiveness. So once the accusers realized the darkness that still resided in their hearts. Now listen, maybe the majority of those men had not committed sexual sin, but you know what they were doing? Their hearts were so dark that they were willing to see a woman murdered just so they could trap Jesus. That's pretty sick. It's pretty messed up. And so once they all realized how dark their hearts were, they all left and the only ones that were remaining were, were the accused woman and Jesus. You know, it's interesting, one of the names for the devil is accuser. And so the only ones left were Jesus and this woman. And now it's interesting, the only person in the universe who could throw stones gave his verdict. And he says, woman, where are your accusers? Where are those that condemn you? Does anyone condemn you? And she said, no, Lord, they don't. And what we learn in that moment is condemnation is not of God. Jesus came to save us from being condemned, not to condemn us. That's not of God. Salvation is of God. Freedom is of God. Forgiveness is of God. And we love this. 
and we love this story, but we forget there is one more sentence. And that sentence is Jesus addressing sin. See, we often take this story and we use it as an excuse to sin. Who are you to throw stones? Listen, I'm no one to throw stones. Jesus is the only righteous judge, right? He is the only one. But that does not give us an excuse to keep living in this sin. Jesus told her. He said, stop doing this. Do you wanna know why he said stop doing this? Because if she, if she would have walked away from that situation without Jesus addressing the sin, if he would have saved her in that moment and not told her, listen to me, to change how she lives, she eventually would have ended up in the same spot of condemnation all over again. You guys hear what I'm saying, correct? This is why Jesus not only saves us, he says, change the way you think and act. That's actually the definition for repentance for the most part. Because if we don't, we will end up right back in the same spot of condemnation. And that is not where Jesus wants us. Jesus wants to forgive, to set us free, but that is dependent on our response to the invitation to change, to the invitation to not live in that sin anymore, okay? All right, next part. Jesus spoke to them again. I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not valid. Even if I testify about myself, Jesus replied, my testimony is true because I know where I come from and I know where I'm going. But you don't know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge by human standards. I judge no one. And if I do judge, my judgment is true because it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. Even in your law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am the one who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. Then they asked him, where is your father? You know neither me nor my father, Jesus answered. If you knew me, you would also know my father. He spoke these words by the treasury while teaching in the temple, but no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. So there are several times in the Gospel of John where John records Jesus saying, I am, and then fill in the blank. Six or seven or eight times, I can't remember exactly how many, I think it might be seven times, that there is this I am phrase. In this, in this one, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Eventually, that, that, those two words, I and am, will get Jesus crucified. It's, it's getting to that. But here he says, I am the light of the world. So it says that I am the light of the world and those who walk in that light will not walk in darkness. Now there's a caveat to that. There's a condition to that, that we have to choose to be under that light. That's like if it was pitch black outside and let's say it was pitch black in this room except for this one light in the center was on. If we are choosing to be in the corners of the room in the darkness, we're going to be confused, we're going to be lost, we're not gonna know what's in front of us. But if we choose to be under that light, we have then chosen to be in a position to, to see clearly, to have understanding. Jesus is saying, I'm the light of the world, but you have to be under, you have to, you have to submit to that light. You have to be under that light in order to see, which means we must follow him. Amen. And so the Pharisees are hearing this 
And they basically say, well, you're saying all this stuff about you, but your testimony's not even valid. There's no one else. But remember, you have to have two people to testify about something for it to be valid. And they're like, well, you're just saying this on your own. Well, he's gonna go on to say, well, God the Father testifies about me. And then you would say, well, how could he do that? He does that through the scripture. The Old Testament scripture tells about the coming Savior. Not only that, the miracles that Jesus did, the words that Jesus said, his teachings, none of it contradicted the scripture, and it actually fulfilled the prophecy of the scripture. So why did the people, the religious people, listen, why did the religious people who knew the Old Testament better than anyone, why did they not see that God himself was standing right in front of them? The reason why is that they looked at the world by human standards. Their lens was their own standards. And so here's the thing about us. We can say we're Christians all day long. We can know who the true God is. You can even read the Bible and have it memorized like the Pharisees did. But if we look at life, if we judge things only by our selfish desires and wants, it is impossible to see God moving even when he is right in front of our faces. So there are a lot of us in this room who claim Christianity and God is moving and we do not see it because we're just thinking about ourselves. And this is a problem. And it's a problem that existed when Jesus walked the earth and it's still a problem today. Now this is important. Now they said, well, where is your father? You keep talking about your father, where is your father? And he doesn't even answer that because they have no desire to know the father. The relig this is so important. The religious leaders had an intellectual knowledge of who God is. What that means is this. If you were to ask any of the Pharisees, who is God? They would, they would tell you who God is. The Old Testament God, right? Same as the New Testament God, but you understand what I'm saying. Just like in the United States, there are a lot of people who profess Christianity. They say, I know Jesus. Now, the problem with that is this. In the book of James, it says every devil in hell knows who Jesus is. And they are lost. They are in hell. Well, wait a second, if I say I know Jesus, I'm saved. How do the devils in hell say that they know Jesus, but they are in hell? It's because they have an intellectual knowledge of who Jesus is, but they have no relationship. They do not know him. And so we cannot know God. One can say that I am a Christian. We cannot say that if we don't talk to God, if we don't listen to God, if we don't obey the word of God, if we are not following God. It's like me saying, I know Brad Pitt. You ever talked to him? No. You ever shook and shaken his hand? No. You ever hung out with him? No. You ever read any books about him? Uh-uh. You ever heard him speak about, you know, has he ever spoken to you about anything? Uh-uh. But you know Brad Pitt? Yep. I hope Brad Pitt sees this. We'll see. But we do this about Jesus all the time. Oh, I know Jesus. Do you intellectually know who he is or do you honestly know him? Do you have a relationship with him? And if you notice, it, man, guys, we're gonna get to it here in a second. Just by intellectually knowing who God is does not save our soul. I'm gonna prove that to you in the next part. Another thing that people fall into is they go, well, there are many ways to get to heaven. Jesus is one of those ways but there's all kinds of different ways. You know, you know what blows my mind nowadays? There are professing Christians who would argue theology with Jesus. You think I'm joking. There are professing Christians who would say, no, 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 universalism is okay. 
Well, let's go back to Jesus's theology. And there is no room for universalism in Jesus's theology. That may be your theology, but if you call yourself a Christian, you're wrong. There are not any more pathways. He says the only pathway, multiple times, the only pathway to the Father, the only pathway to eternity, Jesus says is through him. There is also no second chances after this life. I'm sorry, you're not gonna get another run at it as a butterfly or you know, something that's just not gonna happen. And so we have to understand, at the end of this life, we're going to give an account for what we believed. Jesus said, if you deny me in this life, if you, if you deny me in this life, I will deny you in heaven. Jesus said this, and these words are true. And if we call ourselves Christians, it would just make logical sense that we believe the words of Christ, the one that we are to be following. Then he said to them again, here we go, guys. I'm going away, you will look for me, and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews said again, he won't kill himself, will he? Since he said, where I'm going, you cannot come. You are below, he told them, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore I told you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Who are you, they questioned. Exactly what I've been telling you from the beginning, Jesus told them. I have many things to say and to judge you about, but the one who sent me is true. And what I have heard from him, these things I tell the world. They did not know that he was speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own. But just as the Father taught me, I say these things. The one who sent me is with me. This last sentence is important. He has not left me alone because I always do what pleases him. That's very important. We'll go back to that. So because the Pharisees had no desire to truly know God, Jesus assured them, he says, I'm gonna leave, and where I go, you can't come. Does that mean that, that, that humans cannot enter in to the heaven that Jesus is going to. No, that's not what that means. In fact, Jesus told his disciples, I am leaving here to prepare a place for you. The problem wasn't that Jesus didn't want all the people listening to him to go where he was going. The problem is, is that they had no desire to really go where he was going. They had no desire to know him. And a refusal to know Jesus bars us from an eternity with Jesus, a refusal to acknowledge the truth bars us from heaven. And so Jesus's words made no sense. I hope you guys keep hearing this. Jesus's words made no sense to the religious people because at the core of their heart, the religious people loved the things of the world more than they loved God. Do you hear what I'm saying? There's a lot, I'm not saying any of you. There are a lot of religious people around you that they say, you know, what the, you know what the Old Testament says? It says, their lips are close to me, but their hearts are far away. There are a lot of people who, who claim to be something, but they are not that. Going back to Jesus, I'm sorry I always bring up Jesus so much. 
in church. But one of the things Jesus said in Matthew was that you will, you will know a tree by its fruit. We talked about this last week. That, that you will know a tree by its fruit. We can say we're one thing, but our actions, our lifestyle will prove what we really desire and care about. It's like when families come to church and when they come to church and they say, man, I, we just wanna raise our kids to love the Lord. We come to church about once every six weeks because of travel baseball. I got nothing against baseball, guys. Absolutely nothing. My daughter's a cheerleader at the school she goes to. Had no idea what that world was like until we entered it. <laughs> but we teach our daughter, cheerleading is not the center of the universe. It will not save your soul. Now, you need to be as best at it as you can be. We'll pay for it. My God, do we pay for it? We'll do all that stuff. <laughs> and we should do the best we can for the glorification of God. But at the end of the day, cheerleading will not save my daughter's soul. Neither will that travel baseball save your son's soul. And listen, if we say that our number one thing is to raise our kids in, in the fear and honor of the Lord, but we do not prioritize church, we do not pray with them, we do not teach them the principles of the word of God, we can say what we want all the time, but it doesn't make it so. There are a lot of people who claim that they love Jesus more than anything, but really the desire of their heart is the job, it's the money, it's the car, it's the affirmation, it's the pleasure. And I'm not saying that all those things are altogether wrong, but seek first the kingdom of God. And so do we fail to understand the word of God? Do we fail to live out the word of God because we are looking at life through the lens of worldly values and not biblical values? Are we clinging to things so tightly as Christians that are going to pass away? They're going to pass away. And yet we cling on to them. We white knuckle those things. And so Jesus says this to them. This is very interesting. He says, you're going to die in your sin. And then later on, he says, you're going to die in your sins. The first one is singular. You're going to die in your sin. What he meant by singular sin there was the sin of disbelief. Well, hold on a second, Corey. You said these are the religious leaders and they know who God is. They do but we are living in disbelief. Even if we know who Jesus is, we are living in disbelief if we are not living by the word of God. Because we're basically saying, I don't believe these things are really gonna fall through, are gonna come to pass, that these things are gonna shake down the way the word says. If we honestly believe that one day Jesus was coming back, we would live a little bit differently. And that means we do not believe everything that's in there. So the first sin, Jesus says, if you live in the sin of disbelief, you're gonna die in that sin. And then later on, he virtually says the same thing, but he uses the plural term. Why? Because when we live in the singular sin of disbelief or rebellion to what God is saying to us, it will multiply and it will create a lifestyle of multiple things that God disapproves of. And is it a single sin that separates us from God eternally? I don't believe so, but it may start that way if that single sin is the sin of disbelief because it leads to a deliberate sinful lifestyle. And a deliberate sinful lifestyle is an indicator that you're not a follower of Jesus, and that affects your eternity. I don't care what anyone tells you, it affects your eternity. And so they ask facetiously, they don't care. They say, who are you? And Jesus is like, what have I been telling you? What have I been showing you? 
Do you think anyone could just show up and feed 12 to 15,000 people with a couple of loaves of bread and fish? Do you think anyone could heal people that hadn't walked in 30 something years? Do you think anyone he's gonna eventually raise people from the dead and do all these things? You know exactly who I'm saying that I am. But they had no desire to see his true identity. And so they weren't willing to listen to him, but Jesus keeps giving them more evidence. And a piece of evidence he gives them is he, he, he foreshadows the cross. He says, some of you will know who I am when you lift me up. He's saying, some of you will realize what you've done after you've crucified me, after you've put me on the cross. And he gives more evidence that he is the Messiah. And so Jesus knew what was coming. This is also a very important part. Jesus knew what was coming. And he says to them, God is with me. I am not alone. Why? Why is God with him and why is he not alone? He says it because he always does what pleases God the Father. Now listen, we are not always going to please God. I confessed last week to all of you, got upset in my car, tossed my phone, broke my, my front windshield of my car, that God was probably like, Corey, you know better, right? This is displeasing. We are going to displease God every once in a while. But if we consistently, listen to me, and deliberately live in sin, if we consistently and deliberately live in denial of the truths of this book, if we do not have remorse for our sin, if we do not repent for our sin, we cannot expect God to be active in our lives. How dare you, Corey? In the book of James, in the book of James, it says that the prayers of a righteous person are effective. You're smart people. That would lead us to deduce, because we wouldn't have said it if, if, if this weren't the case, that the prayers of unrighteous people are ineffective. Why? Because God's so mean? No, 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 no. If we are asking for a promotion at our job, but we have unrepented sin in our heart, and we keep saying, well, why doesn't God give me that promotion? It'd be good for me, for my family. I'm gonna tell you why. I'm not God, God I don't make all the decisions, but I'm, I'm gonna assume this is what God is saying based on scripture. God is more concerned about this sin that is in your heart that is unrepented that could possibly separate you from eternity more than he is about that promotion that you keep praying about. Amen. And maybe those prayers would be more effective if we dealt with the unrighteousness that was in our heart. I know they would be because that's what the Bible says. It's like when a young couple walks up to one of us after service and they, they're not married and they say, hey, will you pray for our relationship? And I say, oh, I'd love to pray for your relationship. Are you guys living correctly? Which means, are you having sex outside of marriage? And they'll say, yeah, we're doing that. And I'm like, I can't pray for God to bless your relationship then because your relationship is in rebellion to the way God wants you to do it. And people get offended by that and they leave the church. They say, how dare you? I'm not gonna pray for God to bless unrighteousness because it's a futile prayer. Amen, somebody. So, so. There's still some people that like the Bible, right? Okay, a couple of us. Good, good deal. All right. So we cannot expect God to be active in our finances, in our family, in our marriage, if we are constantly living in rebellion to his authority. Because living in rebellion to his authority is saying, I don't want you to intervene. And then we get really ticked off when he doesn't do things for us. That's asinine. That's a good word, right? Really ridiculous. Really ridiculous that we would expect such things. So we have to talk about sin, right? Sin's a problem. Sin is a problem. 
We don't talk about sin enough. A, a friend of mine who's an author wrote something really, really brilliantly in one of his books. He's a good friend of mine. He said that in the United States, in the year we live in, therapy has replaced repentance. Amen. Someone's awake now. So listen, here's the thing. We have all fallen short. We have all sinned. Says this in Romans 3.23, we have all fallen short of the example, the glory of God, which is Jesus. And fortunately, Jesus does not condemn us for that. He doesn't turn a blind eye to sin, as we saw, but Jesus wants to save us. He wants to save us from that condemnation. All of us have been that adulterous woman surrounded by accusers. Do you wanna know one of the other names for the devil is accuser? We have all been this woman. And Jesus doesn't want to condemn us. He wants to come in and save us from that condemnation. And so through the cross, we are offered forgiveness of sins if we ask for it. We are offered restoration. And he gives us help to grow closer to him in relationship and in lifestyle. To say that one is saved but they have no relationship and their life doesn't look different is completely antithetical to the scripture. Romans chapter six. If we are still living the same way that we were before we had an encounter with Jesus, it is quite possible we never had a true encounter with Jesus. We change when we come into a relationship with our savior. So listen, in light of knowing the weight and the price that it took to forgive us of that sin, to open up a relationship, to forgive us and, 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 and get rid of that shame and that guilt, the true Christian, listen to me, not just the self-professing nominal Southern, you know, I'm fourth generation, blah, 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 none of that. I'm talking about the true Christian, the true follower of Christ, does not make excuses to deliberately live in sin. Amen. We don't. So we must acknowledge and we must strive to turn away from sin. That's actually what repentance means. It's a turning away from. Because again, I'm quoting James a lot today. James even says, if we know what is right, but we do not do it, that is wrong. That is sin. It's a sin of omission. Maybe the biggest problem in the church in the United States is not sins of commission, things we do. Maybe it's sins of omission, things that we're not doing. And maybe we're not building that relationship with him. So if we willingly commit the sin of disbelief, and again, people say, well, I know Jesus. I know who he is. The devils in hell also do. Knowing him is living in a relationship with him. In disbelief, I've used the term Christian atheist before. We know that there's a God, but we don't live like there's a God. That's a disbelief in the scripture. It's a disbelief in the word of God. And that disbelief, that sin will lead to a multitude of sins. And it will leave us confused. And it will leave us eternally separated from God. And so listen, even if we label ourselves as Christians, but we live in rebellion to Jesus, we cannot expect the things of God when we do not welcome God into our life. Amen. Jesus even says this, 
No one can serve two masters. Jesus said this, because you'll either hate the one and love the other or hate this one and love that one. You cannot serve both. So the notion that we can serve ourselves, that's the God of the United States. If we can serve ourselves and still serve Jesus simultaneously, Jesus himself says, that is impossible. We cannot serve both. We cannot serve our own desires and lusts and ourselves and expect the things of God in our life. Now listen, I understand common grace that it rains on the just and the unjust. That's not what I'm talking about here though. I am talking about the deep, everlasting blessings of God. We cannot expect that if we live in rebellion to him. No man or woman can serve two masters. So we must have a relationship, truly know Jesus. And listen, if we truly know him, truly know him, we will have a desire to move further and further away from evil. That's called sanctification means that we become more like Jesus and we are used more like Jesus. Here's the most logical, simple explanation of that. Let's say this wall is evil, that's our sin, that's our temptation, all these things. That wall back there is Jesus. If we are in a relationship with him, moving towards him, if we are naturally moving closer to that wall, we're moving further away from that wall. If any of your kindergarten children were in this room, they'd be like, makes sense to me. The closer we get to that, the further we get from that. It's the same thing in our faith. We will not be perfect until Christ comes back for us. But in this life, we should be moving further away from evil action and closer to being more like him. This is what the Christian does. And if we live in a relationship with Jesus, we live in the peace and security that on this journey from evil to righteousness, I'm not alone. I have a savior that has forgiven me. I have the word of God that tells me how to live. And I have the Holy Spirit that gives me the strength to do it. We are not alone if, 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 we are living in a relationship with Jesus. So it is only in knowing Jesus that we can even understand who we are. If one word can describe this generation, I'm not talking about just young people, I'm talking about all people alive right now in the Western world. If one word would encapsulate our thought process, it is the word identity. Identity. Our identity is our skin color. It is our gender, it is our sexual preference, it is the nation in which I'm born in, it's how much money is in my checking account, it's my political affiliation, and this becomes our identity. And it is shocking to me, the more and more we try to find our identity in everything other than the one thing we are made in the image of, the more and more we do that. Suicides have never been higher in the United States since we have kept a record of such things. Depression has never been higher in the United States since we've kept a record of such things. Anxiety has never been higher. Violent crime has never been higher. Divorce or the lack of marriage has never been higher. And on and on we can go. And these are secular universities that are publishing these, these studies. And the more we keep trying to put a square peg in a round hole, the more frustrated we get the more aggressive we get because we 
deep down in us, we do not know who we are. Because if we try to identify as anything other than the one who has made us, we will never find it. It is only when knowing who my creator is that I can understand who I am as the creation. And I can live in that purpose and that fulfillment and that confidence and that comfort and that peace. So we come to the question. If we are honest, listen, as we go on through this life, it does you no good to bury your head in the sand. It does you no good to get into your closet and cover yourself up with, with blankets, pretending that everything's going to pass and that Jesus doesn't see our heart. It does us no good to pretend. It does us no good to, to throw our labels out there. And it, I don't care how many pictures of Bibles and bagels you put on your Instagram, it does not matter. The question is, do we have a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ? Now, here's what we do. Even a lot of professing Christians, a lot of non-Christians do this. And unfortunately, a lot of people who should know better do this. We say, well, the reason I don't have contentment, the reason I don't have fulfillment, the reason I don't have purpose or joy in my life, it's because of the government. It's because of the economy. It's because I had bad parents. It's because I got a rude neighbor. It's because I have all these things and we shift the blame. When maybe the real reason why a lot of us in this room or people watching at home or whatever the heck, right, Brad Pitt, all these people, the reason why we do not have that contentment, that fulfillment, that peace is not because of all these external factors. Maybe it's because my heart is not connected to my creators. Maybe the problem is I don't have a relationship with the only one that can give me peace. The only one that can fulfill me. The only one where I can find my identity in. And that's why the fruit of the Spirit is things like joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. That these things spring up from him. Maybe the problem is not because you don't like me or because these things are going on. Maybe the problem is my disconnect from my creator. Would you bow your heads with me, please? If, um, if you are in this room and maybe you do not have a relationship with God, maybe you're searching, maybe you're digging, maybe you're asking all the big questions and, and, and you're on a journey, I'm so glad you're here. If you have any questions up here on my right, your left, Pastor Greg is at the front of the stage, the corner, okay? If you have any questions for him, he would, he would be more than happy to talk with you. We also have men and women on both sides of the stage. If you need prayer for anything, listen, you're not only not alone because God's with you, you have brothers and sisters with you. If you need someone in this room to pray with you, Guys, I don't know if you've ever been there. There have been times I've been so confused and stressed and, and upset that I don't have the words and I need someone else to pray with me, for me. Let us do that for you. The last thing is we have communion all the way around this room on all the, the tables with lamps on them and in the majority of these posts in the middle. There's bread and wine. And that represents the fact that Jesus loves you so much he died on the cross for you and I. 
that he gave up his body and he shed his blood for the forgiveness of sin, that we could have peace and joy, that we could be liberated and set free from condemnation. All of us are welcome to take that as long as you have asked Jesus to forgive you of those sins. I wanna pray with you. Father God, we love you. Lord, I love this church. God, this is, this is such a beautiful, wonderful group of people. These are people, Lord, that I believe do love you. I just pray that we would be honest, God, that we would be honest if we're not praying, if we're not reading the word, if we're not setting aside uh, a time to just meditate on you, and if we're not obeying what the scripture tells us to do, God, I just pray that you convict us because you love us. I pray, God, that we would experience the fulfillment and, and the fruit of the Spirit, God. I pray, Lord, that we would be confident, not in ourselves, God, but, but that we're connected to you, that you would give us that confidence. Lord, we love you. We thank you, God. Bless everyone in this room. Keep us safe until we meet again. Not just physically safe, Lord, mentally safe, spiritually safe. Keep our hearts safe, God. We love you. We thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. You're welcome to help yourself. Thank you so much.